0: Thank you, Brian. So we've said that uh, God's, uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews, that Hebrews is written, it's birthed out of a concern. And the concern is that he wants his audience, he wants you and I to go all the way with Jesus. See, they had this initial excitement about Jesus, but then things got difficult. I mean, some of them were facing persecution because of their faith and trust in Jesus. I mean, they had loved ones that were suffering. They had friends who were deserting Jesus and the faith community. Life was hard. I mean, there was sickness. There was death. And so many of them were disappointed in God. And so they were tempted to go back to what they'd known previously and to uh, set Jesus aside, to not go all the way with him. I mean, they were like, wait a minute, this was supposed to be easier. You know, and they were starting to lag behind. And if some of us were honest in the room, you know what that feels like, don't you? Because you thought that you'd accept Jesus and everything would just work out in your life. It would be easy. I mean, easy street, easy life, easy marriage, And, uh, you, you know, that's not happening. I mean, maybe you thought you'd be married by now or have children by now, and you aren't and you don't. Maybe some of you are married and you desperately want your marriage to get better, and it isn't. Uh, So the writer of Hebrews has one basic message to people like you and me. Don't give up. Christ is better. Go all the way with him. Do whatever is necessary to keep your faith and trust in Jesus strong. And so here in chapter 3, the author is going to warn us against the number one danger to the church and as a follower of Jesus, and that is unbelief. Unbelief. I mean, think about this. When sin entered the world in uh, Genesis chapter 3, it did so because of unbelief, because Eve refused to believe what God had said and instead chose to believe what Satan had said. We're also going to see that, in, and we're going to look at this extensively today, that unbelief was a problem for the nation of Israel, and it's a problem for the church today. And here's why. Because the human heart, yours and mine, comes stamped with a bent toward unbelief. And here's why. Unbelief appeals to my nature. Uh, To use a theological term, you might say unbelief appeals to my flesh. Because unbelief allows me to have control right i don't have to answer to anything or anyone else i get to shape my life i get to determine what's right or what's wrong right i can shape my life and my morality in a way that suits me people are drawn to unbelief because unbelief doesn't demand anything from us it doesn't it doesn't demand anything unbelief is comfortable right? But listen, because uh, unbelief doesn't demand anything, but it will cost you everything. It doesn't demand anything from you, but it will cost you everything. And so this is why uh, the author says this. We're going to focus on those last three verses, and then I'll give you some background. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you, uh, in, 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 in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But it, but encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come Come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the very end. So let's just kind of walk through this phrase by phrase. First he says, take care. In other words, watch out, be watchful, be careful, focus on this right? Then he says, take care brothers. So he's talking to the church. He's talking to the family of God, and that's super important to understand as well. And then he says, lest any of you have what he calls an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, this is one of those times where understanding uh, what's come before is so helpful in understanding what the author here is saying. Um, it'll give you a much richer understanding. So, if you notice in your Bible, in fact, Brian read these words right before verse 12, there's a section that reads like poetry. That's actually a quote of Psalm 95, and he's attributing Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 95 is referring to a very significant moment in the life of Israel that's actually recorded in Numbers chapter 14. And I'm just going to fill in some of the gaps in these verses so we can really dial in on what the author is saying. So in Numbers 14, Israel is about to enter the land that God had promised to give them, right? He's brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, uh, and he's bringing them into the land that he's promised them. So they've traveled across the desert. They're on the cusp of entering this uh, land that God promised. And while leading them, I mean, God has done all these miraculous things. He's parted the sea. He drowned the entire Egyptian army. He led them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke uh, by the day. And so they're finally ready to enter in. So what they do is they send 10 spies into the land to kind of survey, see who's living there, see what their chances are. They send the 10 spies and they come back. And eight of the 10 say, dude, we don't want to go there. Like, The people, like we're short Jewish guys, but the people there, they're big and tall. They do all their shopping at the men's big and tall shop. We're talking NBA big. They could field a basketball team, guys. We're talking NBA. We don't want to go do that. Now remember, God had told them to go do it, but Three men, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb said, no, listen, if God led us here, if the God who parted the Red Sea promised us that land, we can go. We can go in. We can take it. And so the, un- but, but all the people and most of the spies, they, they, they were filled with unbelief. And I want to remind you that these were men and women who'd seen God do amazing things. I mean, they had literally seen God part the Red Sea. They had seen that with their own two eyes. And yet, they were still filled with uh, unbelief, right? And so they even decide that they don't want to go into the land. They demand new leadership. They demand leadership that will do the things that they think that they should do. And we're told they grumble or complain against God, uh, and and want new leadership. So basically, what they're doing is they're giving God a flat out no. We're not going to do it. We don't believe that you're going to take care of us and help us. We're not going to go. So as a result, God banishes that entire generation um, from entering into that land because they'd harden their hearts against him. That's where this hardening language comes from. So the author here in Hebrews 3 is making a point, and it's this. The people who God brought out of Egypt by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, they ended up missing what God had had for them because of unbelief. So what he's saying is, church, don't you miss anything that God has for you because of unbelief. And what the author is doing is warning us against the same thing that Israel already did because he says sin is deceitful. In other words, it lies. It makes promises it can't keep. It will seem shiny and alluring. It will promise you that it will be pleasant and good, but then it always does a bait and switch. Uh, so it's deceitful he says Um, and then he says that a hardened heart will cause us to fall away from the living God literally to apostatize this is an active rejection of God not just a passive indirect consequence of your actions not like back in Hebrews 2 where he says hey don't neglect your salvation here what he's saying is look don't actively reject God uh, so important to understand. So this is a huge warning against unbelief. So we, what I want us to understand today is how do we get from Exodus Israel, part the Red Sea Israel, to uh, rebellious Israel? How do God's people end up like that? How do you wind up with a, a hardened heart that outright rejects God? And it's a process. I mean, we all know this, right? It doesn't spring up overnight. It happens slowly. And usually it involves some stages. So I'm going to walk you through some of the stages that I think Christians can go to as it relates to unbelief. And it always starts here, and this is where it started in the book of Hebrews. It first starts with disappointment with God. The first step is disappointment with God. Now, I want to be clear it's not, it's not sinful. It's not sin to be disappointed with God. In fact, I'll prove it. So the psalms in the Old Testament, that was Israel's hymn book. These were literally songs that they would sing, and there's a type of psalm called a psalm of lament, and that's kind of a theological way, a fancy way of saying a psalm of complaint, so what they would do is they would write, write down and they would say things like, well, Lord, you know, why aren't you rising up? Why aren't you vanquishing our enemies? What's going on? Why is this happening? And so they would sing these as part of their uh, worship liturgy, if you will, right? So uh, God can handle our disappointment with him. But it's so important that we handle our disappointment in God rightly. And in order to handle it rightly, I have to take that disappointment directly to him, just as the psalmist did, just as the Israelites did when they would sing those songs to God. So we got to take our disappointment to him. He's a big, he's a big God. He can take that, right? But it always starts with disappointment. Now, Because if you don't, if you don't take it to God, what will happen is your disappointment will turn into doubt. Now listen, doubt is still not sin. Everybody doubts. Everybody doubts. Um, And I'm going to prove this to you. So uh, Jesus was appointed to John the Baptist one day, and he said of John the Baptist, he said, among those born of women, there's nobody greater than John. Now, John was the guy whose job was to be a forerunner to Jesus, kind of like the, the, the warm-up, right? Like the, at a concert, you know, you always have a band that warms up for the main band. So John's job was to go, this is the guy. He's the one. He's sent from God. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. He's our guy. And he did that, and he did that faithfully. But at one point, he became dis- John the Baptist became disappointed in God because things weren't working out the way that he thought they were going to work out and he was in prison so John sends a message to Jesus now remember he's been going he's the guy he's the one and you know what his message to Jesus said he said hey are you the guy or should we expect someone else so in a weak moment John the Baptist doubted, right? But Jesus still said of him, among those born of women, there's nobody greater than John. Because doubt is just a natural part of the faith and trust process. It's natural. I'll give you another example. When Thomas doubted the resurrection of Jesus after his death, Jesus didn't didn't uh, like discipline Thomas or call him out or punish him or tell him he should have had more faith. You know what he did? He accommodated Thomas's doubts. In fact we're gonna that's the this is the story we're gonna look at on Easter Sunday. Uh, We're gonna call that doubters welcome because Jesus always accommodates our doubts in order to bring in greater faith. I'll, I'll give you an example of a season I just came out of of doubt. So in 2020, I believe the Spirit of God was calling uh, our church to do an all-in discipleship journey. And part of that would be the need to raise resources to do a bunch of ministry in the community that we wanted to do. And I believe very clearly the Spirit was telling me that. But I didn't like that the Holy Spirit was telling me that. And I would say things to God like this, Hey God, um, you know we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Probably not the best time to do something like that, right? I mean, if I go to people and I do this, some people are going to think it's a bad ask. Some people are going to think I'm an idiot. God, I don't like to look like an idiot in front of people. What if we don't, what if we don't do it? Then I'm even going to look more foolish. And do you know what I felt very strongly the Spirit of God say to me? I will be glorified in your willingness to look like an idiot." I'll be glorified in that, but you've got to do the things that I ask you to do even when those things are hard, even when they're difficult, even when the timing doesn't seem right, or even when the timing seems completely misplaced. You have to obey me when I ask you. You can't wait until a day or a time or a season when it's convenient for you or for the church. That's not the way obedience works. So that's just kind of my own little... So my point is this. All of us are afflicted with doubt from time to time. Doubt is not sin. Disappointment with God is not sin. But the next step is where it starts to get a little murky. Because what we often do when we start to doubt is we pull back. We isolate ourselves. We step back from community instead of stepping into community. In other words, when, when you and I are in a season of doubt, what we need is we need brothers and sisters speaking into our lives saying, look, Jesus is better. Don't give up. Keep Fighting, keep digging, keep growing, keep serving, keep worshiping, keep investing. Don't give up, don't stop. This is what the message of the book of Hebrews is. And the author is saying, Look, you need to say that to one another. And listen, the faith community is the only one equipped to help you with your doubts. If you pull back and you isolate and you go to your unbelieving friends to try to help you with your doubts, they're not equipped for that. They're, they're not believers, right? They're not accustomed. I mean, if you don't believe anything, you're not going to doubt that, right? But anything that you believe, you're going to be tempted to doubt. So you gotta, that's when you've got to press in and you've got to receive from community. See, because it's in isolation that you are in a very dangerous place. And here's what that place is. You start to become numb to the voice of God and when you start to become numb to the voice of God, nothing good comes from that. The most dangerous emotion that you can feel is numbness toward the voice of God. So when you get isolated, the next stage or step to unbelief is this one. It's just fear. It's just fear. Because when you're isolated from God and community, fear comes next. Because the thing you would have trusted God to take care of, it's now all on you. It's a monkey on your back. And so anxiety, right, begins to reign in your life. I've heard it said that the basis of all fear is the belief that God is not in control. Because if we believe that God was good and that he was in control, we wouldn't be filled with anxiety. And let me tell you this, in the absence of the confidence in God's faithfulness, shallow crises always incite deep fear. Even little crises will cause you to just uh, be overwhelmed with anxiety, fear. And then fear always leads us to pride because we have to buck up, right? In the presence of fear. And we have to come up with a plan. And it's our own plan. And so in this stage, our own plans and our own ways start to seem better than God's ways. So you outright refuse to obey God in certain areas of your life. I mean, remember, the context here is that Israel just flat out gave God a no. We're not going to do it. And furthermore, we're going to overthrow the leaders that you appointed to lead us. And we're going to find ourselves some leaders who will do what we say. I mean, that's just flat out pride, which will always, always, always lead to sin. In Numbers 14, it's called a rebellion, and that's what sin is. Sin is always rebellion against God. And this is where, in the pride stage and in this stage, this is where your heart starts to harden. This is where big, big changes start to happen in your life. You just get comfortable with your sin. You just don't care that about it anymore your heart is so hard at this point that god's spirit is incapable of breaking through i mean god's still small voice can't penetrate a hard heart and i'll tell you this listen very carefully if you have dialed out dial back in with me for a minute nobody nobody believes their way away from god I want to say that again. Nobody believes their way away from God. Do you know what they do? They behave their way away from God, and then they try to justify their behavior by changing their beliefs. But we're not a people that believe our way away from God, but we are a people that are willing to behave our way away from God, and then change our beliefs if that gets us off the hook or validates our behavior, right? So what are we to do? Because we're told that our enemy, the devil, Satan, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I want you to think about this from the animal kingdom. When a pride of lions is going to attack a prey, what's the first thing they do? They separate their prey from the herd. They isolate that prey from the rest of the herd so that they can bring it down. And the Bible says that's exactly how the process of hard-heartedness works, right? We go to sin. So what I want to do is I want to paint a picture of how a person, a real person, can undergo this kind of transformation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story And it's a story about a famous person, and I want you to tell me if you can guess who this famous person is. Okay? You all in? You may as well, but you got nothing else to do, right? Okay, so when he was a little boy, he wanted to be a pastor. He would sometimes stand on a chair and speak to an imaginary congregation, He had a natural gift for singing and became a member of a choir in a monastery. He had a good mind. He became a reader of philosophy and also excelled in art and architecture. A tragedy came into his life when he was 14 years old. His father died. He had to become the man of the family, and he was never quite the same again after the death of his father. When he was 17, he went to live in the city, and he'd lived in the city for only a year when his mother became seriously ill, so he hurried home and devoted himself to taking care of her. When she died, he was grief-stricken. In fact, he was so grief-stricken, he refused to take any of the inheritance that his mother had left for him, and instead, he gave it to his sister. Then, when an aunt died and left him an inheritance, he refused to take that one either, and he left that and gave that inheritance to another sister. Later, his country went to war, and he volunteered for the army. He was a good soldier. He was decorated for bravery. In fact, there's a story that's widely circulated about this man, that there was a little dog one day that ran into the trench that he was guarding, and he caught that little dog, and he uh, fed it and uh, made it his pets. His pet, they became friends with one another. And later, someone stole that little dog, and for days, this man wept because he missed his relationship with this new friend he especially loved people who had never enjoyed any opportunity in life he loved children he would make colorful and beautiful kites for the youngsters of his community in fact one day a little boy bumped his head against a chair and began to cry to show loving sympathy this man beat his own head against the chair so that they could have a good laugh who do you think this man was His name was Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. That's what a hard heart looks like. That's where that kind of life goes. See, I mean, his name, I mean, historians record his name as one of the most destructive, diabolical personalities of all time. But he didn't start out that way. He didn't start out that way, but he didn't guard his heart. He didn't pay attention to what was going on and what was happening on the inside. And we have to pay attention. So what are we we to do? What's the antidote? How do we keep from going through that cycle and ending up on the bottom? Thankfully, the author here in Hebrews gives us the antidote and it's in verses 13 and 14. Here's what he says. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, I'm going to get to the encourage one another daily piece in a moment. But when you first put your confidence in Christ, what did you put it in? You put it in the gospel. You put it in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, right? So that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, look, hold firm to the gospel. Live out of the gospel. Filter everything that flows into your life through the lens of the gospel, And this is very intentional language on the the part of this author. The phrase he uses is hold to that, hold firm to it. This is very intentional. Holding firm requires effort. It requires concentration. You can't autopilot, hold firm. You can't neglect, hold firm right? He's saying, hold firm to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. Um, Okay, so, because here's the thing, unlike the people of Israel and the story that we just went through in Numbers 14, Jesus is the one who went out into the desert and refused to test or tempt God. Right? Unlike the people of Israel, he is the spy that went into a distant land and became just like them, except he didn't leave the land and call their behavior evil. No, he went to the center of town, laid down his life so that all people could have the opportunity to be cleansed and purified from their sins before entering the land. Think about verse 1 in chapter 3 that Brian read. Jesus Christ, it says, is our apostle and our high priest. So we're to focus on him. An apostle means he was sent by God. A high priest means he stands in our place before God. And not only is he your rep and mine, he's your substitute. So he was sinless. But yet he was punished, and you and I, who are sinners, weren't punished because of Jesus. It's called the great exchange, right? So now, if you believe that, God says, look, you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. And let me kind of walk you through what it means to filter your life through the lens of the gospel. So Paul, I think, does this beautifully in Romans 8. So in Romans 8, here's the context. Paul talks about how we live in a world that groans. He says we have bodies that groan. In other words, we live in a broken world and we sometimes have broken bodies. In other words, there's a lot of reason in this world to sometimes be disappointed in God. So in the face of disappointment, here is is the verse that he writes. And you tell me how you think he's filtering this through the lens of the gospel. He says, this is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up For us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, what he's saying is, well, look, let's just put on our thinking caps. I mean, if Jesus really did come and die in our place, then God wants good things for us. God, uh, you know, he wants to give us the desires of our heart, right? Because he took care of our greatest need already, So he's filtering all of the brokenness in the world, all of the brokenness of our body through the lens of the gospel. See, because of the gospel, because of what God did through Jesus, he says, look, even though you live in a world where things don't always work out the way you think they should, you can know that God loves you. Because of the gospel, you can know that God's eyes are fixed on you. Because of the gospel, you can know that Jesus is with you. This is what we mean by filtering everything through the lens of the gospel. Let me give you another example. Let's say that that someone you love, they die, they pass away, and and that's a tragedy, and it's painful and difficult, and you don't know how you're going to get through that right? Well, the gospel would say this. If you filter that death through the lens of the gospel, you say things like this. Hey, God, I know that if you can bring good out of the death of your son, which was the most unjust death that anyone's ever died, I know if you can bring good out of that death, that even though this is painful, even though this is a tragedy, even though this is hard, even though I'm super hurting right now, I know that you can bring good out of any death. And that as, as hard as this is, I can trust you to weave good purposes out of it. So I will walk with you. I will trust in you because I know because of the gospel that you love me. Do you see what it means to live your life out of the gospel? So important. And then, so so he says, look, cling to the gospel. Filter everything in your life through the gospel. That's the first antidote to unbelief. But the second one is so important, too. He says, look, stay in community with other believers. Stay in relationships where you're encouraging one another, not weekly, but daily. Daily. You should be encouraging one another. How should we be encouraging one another? In exactly the way the author of Hebrews is encouraging us. Stick with Jesus. Go all the way. Keep on. Don't quit. Don't stop. You've got this. God's got you as you've got this. I mean, just this kind of encouragement where we're just regularly pointing one another to Jesus. This is the whole point of verse 13, right? Another way to say this, I'll use, uh, here's a good way to think about this. Do you know why you and I, we need community? with other believers you ready because you got blind spots you got blind spots you got ways that you need to grow that you're not dialed into you're not clued into And it's so important that we have other people who are willing to speak into our blind spots. And like, so if you're in a marriage, I'll guarantee you, you're way more aware of what your spouse's blind spots are than what your blind spots are, right? Because that's why they call them blind spots, because you don't see them. But everybody else sees them, but you don't. I'll give you definitive proof of blind spots. You turn on a talent show on any network television, um, anywhere, and the first four or five episodes, people are going to step up on that stage, and they think they have all the talent in the world. They think they have everything they need to succeed, and then they open their mouth and sing a note right? And everybody in the audience knows they don't have that much talent. All the judges know it. Everybody in that room knows it except the person standing on the stage. That's a blind spot. And, and we all have them, and especially as it relates to our spiritual lives, especially as it relates to our souls and the ways that we want to wander from God or rebel against God. We need a community of people to help us with our blind spots, and it's a daily I mean, remember Israel, right? They had the presence of God with them, a pillar of fire at night, parting of the Red Sea. But they managed to go all the way to unbelief. See, this is why Jesus in the Gospels looked at his disciples and said, you guys just are looking for the next miracle. But if I did miracle after miracle after miracle, that still wouldn't be enough for you. I'm sure he was thinking about all the miracles the people of Israel saw and yet still ended up in unbelief. So blind spots are why all of us need others to remind us Christ is better. Don't give up. Keep fighting. Keep growing. Keep serving. Keep worshiping. So what does that look like? Well, very practically... What it means is we all need to deputize some people to go hunting for sin in our lives and be willing to point that out. And we have to be a people willing to listen to that. It's so funny to me. People will say, well, you know, I'm just going to confess my sin to God. Well, look, he should be the one you should be afraid to. I mean, he's sinless. He's perfect, right? So when you confess your sin to him, he's not going to go, yeah, I know what that feels like, because he doesn't. But when you confess your sin to another human being, well, they know exactly what it feels like to be a colossal moral screw-up. Because we all are, right? Every single one of us. Every once in a while, I'll get a little rowdy up here and I'll say something like this. I'll say, look, if you're looking for a church with a perfect pastor, you better look somewhere else because this pastor is a colossal moral screw-up. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. I'll bet she could go on and on about it. We're all, I mean, look, we're all in the same boat here. And so we need to, and I know, I know that in you and in me, there's a desire in all of us to appear more spiritual than we really are, more together than we really are, you know, more smarter than we really are, and all that stuff. But we got to be a people that's willing to put down our mask in the name of holiness, in the name of growing, in the name of encouragement, so let me ask you, is there anybody like that in your life right now? Is there somebody in your life who encourages you daily to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? See, this is why just being in a small group doesn't get us off the hook. See, because now, if it said, hey, encourage one another weekly, we'd all be golden. Golden right? But what this means is that even if you're in a small group, you need a level of community with a few other believers that goes deeper than that, because he doesn't say weekly. He says, encourage one another daily, because that's how deceitful sin really is. That's how deceitful it can be. You You need to stand by one another and encourage one another every single day, I mean, the last stronghold that Satan will have on your life, for many of us, is the lack of confession of sin because community breaks through sin's deception. It's so important that we go there. Uh, so when you and I are daily exhorting one another with the gospel, daily reminding one another that Christ is better, we start to see the evidence of God's faithfulness all around us because we're seeing lives lit up for the glory of God every day, right? Because that's the kind of community people don't want to run away from. They want to be a part of that. Think about charcoal. Think about a, a grill. How many of you guys grill on weekends? Not now, but like when it gets, you know, warm. Yeah. So if you use a charcoal grill, you probably do that by piling all the charcoal briquettes up in one big pile, right? Because you know that they won't really, those embers won't, together they'll generate enough heat that it'll get super hot. But if you took one of those charcoal briquettes and you put it off by itself, what starts to happen? Starts to go out. Do you know that the Holy Spirit, one of the commands of the New Testament is don't put out the Spirit's fire in your life. How do you do that i'll tell you how you do that by withdrawing and pulling away from christian community the very men and women that could speak into your heart into your mind and into your life and remind you that sin is deceitful and it will only lead you to a hard heart and once you get to a hard heart i mean there's no end to that. I mean, we just saw that in the life of Adolf Hitler, right? So where does all this begin? It begins in the gospel. It just begins there. And so for some of us, here's my my takeaway. We just have to get intentional about getting below the surface and learning how to talk about things other than sports or the weather or, hey, how's your day going? You know, we've got to learn, and it is a learning process. It takes time, but we've got to learn how to go deeper because our faith depends on it our church depends on it your life depends on it so let me just pray for you and me and us would you bow your heads and i'll pray for you god i just pray that uh, we would not be men and women that are held captive by sin's deceitfulness We thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you are better than anything else we could have or even imagine in our lives. And God, would you just grow that chorus of voices that would be willing to speak that to others here. I ask and I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.